Good evening. It is Tuesday night, a little after midnight in New York City. You are listening to WBAI-FM New York, 99.5, part of the Pacifica Network. My name is Anne-Marie Hendrickson, and the name of this show is A Mansion for the Rat. Now, last week I talked uh, about food and about cooking, about uh, cookbooks and food and cooking instruction. And this week I'm going to be continuing my food theme in a more broad sense. Um, I'm going to be talking about agriculture and seeds specifically. Um, There's been a lot written on that, obviously, probably uh, well known to those of you who listen to the station. It's talked about a lot, biodiversity and agriculture. (coughs) Excuse me while I cough on the air, trademark uh, Alpro Martin. And one of the best books I've read in recent years that came out earlier this year is on this topic is called Never Out of Season by Rob Dunn, who is a a professor uh, in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. And, and I found this book particularly valuable because... Um, there is, as uh, as I said, and as you're well aware, quite a lot written on the, the topic of biodiversity, particularly as it applies to agriculture and the food we eat. But most of the stuff that I have read and most of the books that particularly seem to come out in the more, you know, um, commercial publishing market, um, as this book does, this is published by Little Brown. It's not a university press release, um, are, are written by food writers or 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 cooks or uh, home gardeners. They're they're not really written by people with a background in botany. And because of that, I found this, he has a different perspective on it and a a, a different uh, base of knowledge. So I enjoyed reading it. Um, Even things that I knew already were presented in an entertaining way. And at, at least one story about cacao was one that I had never heard, did not know. Um, So I'm going to read to you from several sections of the book. Um, His fundamental thesis is one that I'm sure is familiar to all of you. We have simplified um, our diet to an extent that uh, is great for corporations who want to sell things to us, in many ways great for people who like to prepare food for the same for different reasons, but uh, with a similarly pleasing effect, I guess you could say. Um, we have a, a relatively small number of uh, in- ingredients to work with, but um, and from the cook's point of view, it means that you know how they work. And there's a you know a big uh, big cultural knowledge that goes back a long way of people knowing how to work with specific kinds of fruits and vegetables and grains. Um, so that's, that's good for us because that's predictable. You want predictability when you're doing something. You don't like surprises past a certain point. Not if you have to pay for the ingredients. As any baker who's had a, you know, a cake, (laughs) a cake just not rise properly in the oven could tell you. Um, so, so we like that. I mean, and it's obvious why someone who is marketing these things is going to is is going to do that. That you're going you're going to get good results from marketing things to people that they want. It's also simpler for you as the uh, producer because you just produce one thing, uh, 
um, that you know people are going to want. And for the middleman and distributor, for the same reason, there's many, many reasons that are you know kind of kind of clear why why things have moved in this direction. To some extent, this is something that probably has always been true, but it's only been true on a micro level until recent years um, because it wasn't possible to move things around the globe um, to the extent that it is now. Not that there were, there were certainly stuff moving around the globe, but not in the way and out of the speed that it happens today. So this is a situation as you and I, and, you know, we all, we all know this. Everybody, you know, if you're interested in this subject at all, and if, even if you're not, if you listen to the station, you, you know this much. We, we're, all, we're all very aware of this at this point. So I'm going to read um, a, a few sections from this book, some, some selected uh, discussions of how this um, plays out in the terms of very specific and some very specific foods. Um, in some parts of the world, as you know, um, in, in Africa... Africa generally, West Africa is uh, even more importantly, probably about 80% of the calories of the, the nutrition really that people get comes from cassava specifically. In much of Asia, it is rice. And um, uh, in North America, of course, as you all know, it is corn. And in all three places, the uh, species of core of cassava, rice, and corn are pretty limited. In in many cases, it's just one. It's just it's it's no more than a than a couple, and that is worrying if uh, you really don't have other foodstuffs to fall back on in any realistic way. Which the poorer you are, the more likely this is the case. And even if you have money, in fact, it's probably likely the case. But to talk about how and why, let's. Uh, I will start by reading his discussion of uh, bananas. And the book I'm reading from, again, is Never Out of Season by Rob Dunn. On a plate, a single banana seems whimsical, yellow and sweet, contained in its own easy-to-open peel. It is a charming breakfast luxury, as silly as it is delicious and ever-present. Yet when you eat a banana, the flavor on your tongue has complex roots, equal parts sweetness and tragedy. In 1950, most bananas were exported from Central America. Guatemala, in particular, was a key piece of a vast empire of banana plantations run by the American-owned United Fruit Company. United Fruit Company paid Guatemala's government modest sums in exchange for the land. With the land, United Fruit planted bananas and then did as it pleased. It exercised absolute control not only over what workers did, but also over how and where they lived. In addition, it controlled transportation, constructing, for example, the first railway in the country, one that was designed to be as useless as possible for the people of Guatemala and as useful as possible for transporting bananas. The company's profits were immense. In 1950, its revenues were twice the gross domestic product of the entire country of Guatemala. Yet, while the United Fruit Company invested greatly in its ability to move bananas, little was invested in understanding the biology of bananas themselves. United Fruit and the rest of the banana industry did what industries do. They figured out how to do one thing well. In this case, grow one variety of banana, the Gros Michel. Moreover, because it is difficult to get domesticated bananas to have sex, they are Puritan in their proclivities, blessed with virtually no seeds, the Gromichel was reproduced via suckers, clonally. Cuttings from the best specimens were replanted. 
As a result, virtually all bananas grown in Guatemala, in Latin America in general, and around the world for export, were genetically identical. Identical in the way that identical human twins are identical, and even a tiny bit more so. For industry, this was great. Bananas were predictable. Each was like each other. No banana was ever the wrong size, the wrong flavor, the wrong anything. It is hard to overestimate how unusual the situation of bananas in the middle of the last century was. Unusual not just in the history of humanity, but also in the history of life. There is a patch of aspen trees in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah that many argue is the largest living organism on Earth. It comprises some 37,000 trees, each of which is genetically the same as the other. And the argument goes that the trees, collectively, represent a single organism because they are identical and connected by their roots. But requiring pieces of an organism to be connected in order to be considered part of a collective is arbitrary. The ants in an ant colony, for example, are clearly part of the colony, even when they're not physically in the nest. All this is to say that an argument could be made that large groups of genetically identical plants, even if not connected, may reasonably be considered a single organism. If one makes such an argument, the banana plantations of Central America in the 1950s were not only the largest collective organism alive at that point, they also may well have been the largest collective organism ever to live. Economically, growing just a single clone of bananas was genius. Biologically, it posed problems. These problems had already been noted, for example, in the British production and export of coffee in the 1800s. At that time, the British drank coffee, not tea. They drank coffee exported from their colony Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. Early on in Ceylon, coffee plantations were planted among wild forests. When the British took Ceylon from the Dutch in 1797, they began to expand coffee production on the island. Investment in the coffee plantations by the English, both at home and abroad, was unlimited and its, and its profusion was, une was equaled only by the ignorance and inexperience of those to whom it was entrusted. As the demand for coffee increased, it was planted in large monocultures, that is, vast areas of only single, a single variety of tree. Coffee on one hill, coffee on the next. Not a taller, wilder tree to be seen. There were 160,000 hectares of the central uplands planted in coffee. The coffee brought real affluence, banks, roads, hotels, and luxury. It was an unbridled success, or it seemed to be. Harry Marshall Ward, a British fungal biologist visiting Ceylon in 1887, warned farmers that farming such large plantations of a single variety of coffee would cause problems. Pests and pathogens, once they arrived in the plantations, would devour them. This was, he thought, particularly true of coffee rust, which was already present in Ceylon, but would also be true of any pest or pathogen that arrived. Nothing would stop such an organism from quickly devouring all the trees, since they were all the same variety, and thus equally susceptible to whatever threat might arise or arrive. And they were planted very close together. This is exactly what happened. Coffee rust wiped out the coffee of Ceylon, and subsequently much of the rest of the coffee of Asia and Africa. Coffee growers replanted with tea. Ward had predicted that the coffee of Ceylon would be devastated. As the plantations of bananas expanded across the American tropics, scientists made similar predictions. These scientists noted that in the same that in the native range of bananas lived a great diversity. There were big ones, small ones, sweet ones, sour ones, hard ones, soft ones, bananas as dessert, and bananas plantains really consumed as sustenance. In those same regions one could also find an extraordinary diversity of pathogens. 
But in the cultivated world of bananas, the scientists pointed out, because a single genetically identical variety of banana was planted everywhere, were any banana attacking pathogen to arrive, it would mean trouble. Any pathogen that could attack a single banana plant, even one, would be able to kill all of the banana plants. If the banana companies had listened to these warnings, they might have planted a diversity of banana varieties or a variety that would be resistant to the most likely pathogens. But why would they? The single clone of the Gromichelle banana was the most productive anyone had ever found. Planting anything else would mean losing money. Then the inevitable happened. A malady arrived. Panama disease, now more often called Fusarium wilt, caused by the pathogen Fusarium oxysporum cubensi. Panama disease started to wipe out banana plantations in 1890. Nothing precluded its spread or even promised to slow it. Seen from above, the plantations across Latin America started to look like the lights had been turned out. Patches of bright green went black. Whole landscapes went black. In the, in the Alua Valley of Honduras alone, 30,000 acres were infected and abandoned within the first year in which Panama disease arrived. Nearly all the p- banana plantations in Guatemala were devastated, and once devastated, abandoned, because it was quickly figured out that the pathogen, having arrived, could lurk in the soil for years, or even, as we now know, decades. The United Fruit Company's leaders believed that if they were able to find another banana, one that vaguely resembled the Gros-Michel was but was resistant to the pathogen, it could be planted on the abandoned land and the banana empire could be restored. This plan, however, was based on a farcical set of assumptions. It assumed that consumers would simply accept whatever banana you sold them as long as it looked more or less the same. In addition, it overlooked the reality that no replacement banana had yet turned up. No good option, anyway. The only banana that seemed both pathogen-resistant and similar to the Gromichel was a banana called the Cavendish. The Cavendish tasted very different from the Gromichel. It had off flavors and was less sweet. What it had going for it, though, was that you could plant it even where Panama disease was present in the soil, and it wouldn't die. It still doesn't. Over the next several years, the Cavendish banana would prove to be the only banana that both looked like the Gromichel and would resist Panama disease. So it was without any other real options, and having helped to overthrow a democratically elected government so as to continue to be able to produce cheap bananas, that the United Fruit Company started to plant the Cavendish across hundreds of thousands and then millions of acres. They then began to export it to the United States, along with a massive advertising campaign lauding the benefits of the banana. It worked. Just as the British had earlier switched from coffee to tea, substituting one caffeinated drink in a cup for another, Americans switched from the Gros-Michel banana to the Cavendish. The advertising was so good that the new banana, the Cavendish, was even more successful commercially than, than it had been its predecessor, the Gromichel. Bolstering the Cavendish's sales was the shift of American populations to cities, where the connection between what consumers bought and what grew well locally had been severed. Sales of the Cavendish banana were strong, and they continue to be. It is, with very few exceptions, the only kind of banana you will find in stores outside the regions where bananas grow. Its success fuels the economies of whole countries. It is the biggest export of Costa Rica, Ecuador, Panama, and Belize, and the second most valuable export for Colombia, Guatemala, and Honduras. If you were born after 1950, you are unlikely to have ever purchased any banana other than the Cavendish clone, other than what is now the world's largest organism. To the extent that anyone worried about diseases affecting the Cavendish, it was because of black leaf streak. 
Michael Spirella Fijiensis, which was not nearly as bad as Panama disease. Panama disease, meanwhile, had become a thing of the past. The Cavendish remained resistant in part because the pathogen itself is not very very diverse and so relatively unable to adapt. Industry, we learn from the story of the Cavendish banana, will plant the crop that grows most easily and supply it to us whenever we want. It will encourage us to want it all the time. It will tend to plant crops in ways that produce the greatest yield, even if that mode of production has costs, even if it also puts the very crop the industry depends on at risk. Cavendish bananas are all genetically identical. Each banana you buy in the store is the clone of the one next to it. Every banana plant being grown for export is really part of the same plant, a collective organism larger than any other on Earth, far bigger than the clonal groves of aspens. This giant organism is now at risk of exactly the same sort of population crash that befell the Gros Michel, and a new strain of Fusarium, a close relative of the pathogen that causes Panama disease, has already evolved. It can kill both Gros Michel and Cavendish bananas. This strain has already spread from Asia to East Africa and seems likely to make its way to Central America. This should be extremely worrisome. But what should be more worrisome is that the same is true of most of our crops, most of the plants that we most depend on, a list of species that is shockingly and increasingly short. Okay, and now I'm going to move to the story of a another uh, another plant crop, the potato. And so I'm going to read for the next chapter, which is about the potato famine in Ireland. And as he points out, the significance of this um, aside from anything else, is that it is tempting to see the potato famine as, uh, you know, the result of a particularly dark time in Ireland, a dark backward time. And But it's not really a famine of the past. His, he points out it's really the first modern famine because of the, because of the conditions in which it took place, that uh, of uh, people being driven the first, you know, the enclosure movement as it happened in Ireland, people being driven from rural areas into smaller and smaller plots of land, if not indeed into the cities, and the replacement of um, sustenance uh, agriculture to a large extent with, um, you know, growing for production, you know, growing growing to growing for cash cash crops and trying to sustain the family on uh, smaller, ever smaller, smaller and smaller. Um, Pieces of land. Anyhow, to our story. In July of 1846, after a long winter, the fields of Ireland were as green as a golf course and covered with the shoots of potato plants. Then, in 48 hours, everything changed. From one end of Ireland to the other, but the potatoes died. Near Cork, a traveler found a solitary man in a field, singing. When asked what he was doing, the man said that all his potatoes plant, potato plants were dead, blackened, and oozing. His livelihood was gone, as were his options. What else could he do? Near him, a woman scraped the ground of another field, her body bent, her hands clawing. Beside the woman were a few tiny, oozing potatoes. She planned to cook them for her children. She had nothing else. No wheat, no carrots. The cow had been sold. The same thing was happening across nearly all of Ireland to millions of desperate Irish at the beginning of what was to become one of the worst tragedies in modern human history. The scale of the horrors of the Irish potato famine is almost beyond our ability to conceive. The young died first, then the old, and then everyone else. 
People died in the ditches where they slept for the night, en route to what they hoped might be somewhere better. They died in their fields. Whole villages disappeared. More than a million people would die before it was all over. A million in Ireland? That is. Others left Ireland on ships only to face, nearly as often as not, death themselves. The magnitude is numbing. But what is perhaps most astonishing about the famine as it relates to our lives is that more crops are at risk of devastation today because of pathogens and pests than were at risk when the potato famine occurred. The potato famine was not the last ancient plague, but the first truly modern one. And whereas the threat from the potato famine was regional, the threat we now face and our far more connected economy is global. The potato famine was caused by a disease we now call late blight, and that was then called potato moraine. Late blight was first noted in New York in 1843. Where it arrived, potato plants died. It spread to Pennsylvania within the year and left in its wake even more dead plants. From the perspective of farmers in Pennsylvania and New York, the late blight fell from the sky. It rained down like a curse. The next spring, potatoes were dying as far north as Vermont. In the spring of 1845, the late blight was in Newfoundland, Canada. Then later that year, it was in Belgium. Once the blight was in Belgium, its rate of spread increased, its waypoints measured in months rather than years, and then weeks rather than months. The late blight was in France by July. By August, it had reached England. In the United States, potatoes were a relatively small portion of the average diet, and so while the losses were great to individual farmers, the collective loss was modest. In Europe, particularly northern Europe, things were different. Between 10 and 20 percent of people in the Netherlands, Belgium, Poland, and Prussia ate little solid food other than potatoes. The arrival of the late blight in these regions threatened the sustenance of many families. The death of potatoes in places the late blight had arrived in was so extensive that newspapers could discuss little else. Flanders lost 92% of its 1845 potato crop, Belgium 87%, the Netherlands lost 70%. Even in these countries, each of them far less dependent on the potato than was Ireland, the consequences were dire. In the Netherlands, the relatively well-to-do were said to live on the herbs of the field in the fall of 1845. This was still in the fall, before the long winter. Famine lurked in the small towns and homes across rural northern Europe. The real worry, though, was the small but densely populated island of Ireland. In 1845, the Irish were more dependent on the potato for sustenance than any other group of people in Europe, and for that matter, any other people on earth, even Andeans. This dependence of the Irish on potatoes was new and partially the result of chance, that is, the result that the potato arrived in Ireland from the Americas, where it was native in the first place. The dependence on potatoes was actually partially attributable to the challenges of farming on a cool, wet island where few crops other than potato grew well. But perhaps the biggest reason that the potato came to dominate was the system of land ownership. In Ireland in the 19th century, Protestant barons of British descent owned enormous estates on which middlemen rented land to the masses. The masses paid rent in part by giving their landlords their agricultural surpluses, though surpluses is a misnomer. It would be better to say that the tenants gave their landlords a fixed amount of what they grew, which was then sold to the growing urban population in Dublin, Belk, and Cork, as well as to urban populations in England, and then the tenants themselves consumed the surplus. Given this land system, success for the, Irish, the average Irish family was measured in terms of producing enough food to survive after the landlord took his share. The crop that produced the most food per, per acre was the potato. With each generation, Irish dependence on the potato increased. 
the Irish were locked in a cycle. The potato, and more specifically, the lumper potato, provided complete nutrition, particularly when combined with milk. Complete nutrition that prior to the arrival of the potato in Ireland was lacking. Infant mortality decreased with the farming of the potato. Life expectancies increased. The Irish population boomed, as did populations in other parts of Europe where the potato had become the dominant crop. But as populations boomed, land had to be further subdivided, and as a result, families became even more dependent on the potato. The only crop that could sustain them on ever smaller pieces of land. By the early 1800s, a poor tenant family was likely to have little more than an acre. The only crop that provided for a family on so little space was the potato, and no one would dare plant much else because it would mean having too little to eat. The Irish were trapped eating potatoes, and they ate a lot of them. On that typical acre by 1845, the average adult in Western Ireland may have been consuming as many as 50 to 80 potatoes per day. They often did not have clothes or shoes. They lived in houses carved out of sod. They were penniless and yet, thanks to the potato, nourished. This was the luck of the Irish in the early 1800s. In looking back on the Irish in 1845, it is easy to think of them as backward, but they were the opposite, a culture sustained by the newest approach to agriculture, one in which a single variety of a single crop is planted on a large scale, fertilized, and consumed disproportionately. The Irish represented in their dependence a potential version of our future. As of early 1845, it was still a hopeful future. The late blight, whatever its cause, had not yet made it to the, the 80 miles across the sea, the late blight, whatever its cause, had not made it the 80 miles across the Irish Sea from England, and so the lumper grew in the dark soils of thousands of fields, as rich and sustaining as it ever had been. Meanwhile, the scientists best able to solve the problem of the late blight of potatoes were arguing. No one could agree as to just what caused the disease, and so a contest was held to find the best essay that explained its cause. Many hundreds of entries were submitted. From among the essays, first, second, and third prize winners were selected. All the three winning essays argued that the cold, wet spring weather was to blame, although most agreed it could well be some combination of weather and bad seeds. Of course, there was some modest disagreement about just what aspect of the weather was responsible. Was it the rain or the cold rain? Or maybe it was the cold rain followed by more cold? When pathogens such as fungi were mentioned, they seemed often to go hand-in-hand hand not with these two hypotheses, but instead with an odd list of wild explanations offered by those who failed to know better. The dust from sulfur matches, pollution, volcanoes, airborne, airborne miasma from outer space, or fungus, although to many the idea that a fungus could be responsible for such a sweeping tragedy was plain silly, certainly not the topic of a winning essay. Okay, and now for this, I'll just summarize a bit, because it's quite interesting, but it's also quite long. Um, that there were a number of scientists who, faced with this uh, problem, did correctly identify it as being what they, in the in those days, would refer to as a fungus. Um, it, it really was, the the blight was really something which we would now refer to as an, an olmycete, which is a, a different kind of ancient animal. But fungus, it's not, a, it's not a fungi, not an algae, but certainly anybody who, in 1845, who referred to it as a fungus was uh, was correct, more correct than the other people doing this, and certainly in the, the, ball, the correct ballpark. And uh, among the people who figured that out were a French mycologist, uh, the Abbe Edward van de Hecke, uh, 
the Martin Martins of the University of Levin, a an amateur but well-regarded woman uh, mycologist named Marianne Liber, who is the one that gave it its name. Uh, Boritris, uh, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Boritris devastratrix. Um, and a Belgian mycologist named Charles Morin, who agreed especially with uh, with Madame Lebert, and also uh, came up with a, a good solution for taking care of it based on other uh, f- similar infections that he'd seen, which is he felt that a mixture of if you, uh, you had to remove the infected plants, uh, burn them, to isolate them, so without tracking them to other places and without spreading the infection and uh, the pathogen, I should say. And that if you treated un- unaffected plants with um, a spray made of uh, copper sulfate, lime, and water, that that would be that would be enough to protect the plants. So the and then the. A man named Miles Barkley, who was probably the most well-regarded of all of them, kind of confirmed this this theory, an, Eng- an English scientist. And this is all in 1845, is the significance, meaning a, a year before it all went down in Ireland. And so there were scientists who were talking and in communication and publishing that had correctly identified the, the, the cause of the potato blight. But... Um, it can take time for things like this to, uh, you know, scientists take time to fight with each other and decide what the what the truth is, and that's not really, you know, Im- important unless you are in the situation of the ten farmers in Ireland who have been forced into the situation of uh, throwing all their eggs into one potato basket and just doubling down on it because, you know, it doesn't matter what the scientists decide if they're not. Even if they had known, even if it had been put forward, I don't know how many farmers in Ireland would have been able to do anything do anything about it, quite frankly. But let us uh, return to our story. And uh, our story is to uh, catch you up, if you just came in, is uh, a story of the is from the book Never Out of Season. How Having the Food We Want When We Want It Threatens Our Food Supply and Our Future by Rob Dunn. Um, and you are listening to WBAI-FM in New York City, 99.5, part of the Pacifica Network. The name of the show is Mansion for the Rat, and my name is Anne-Marie Henriksen. And to return to our story of the potato famine. Then it happened... On September 6, 1845, two newspapers announced the arrival of the late blight in Ireland, perhaps from England, though who could say for sure? On September 13th, just seven days later, the Gardener's Chronicle reported that in parts of Ireland the fields were already completely destroyed. The disease was spreading nearly as fast as a man could skip. By October, no field in Ireland was beyond the late blight's reach. Within two months, more than three-quarters of a million acres of potatoes were simply gone, turned to stinking black rot. Those who walked these fields described first and foremost the smell. One got used to the odor of cow dung or even the acrid sting of chicken poop in your nostrils, but not this. Everywhere potatoes had been planted, their infected tubers and stems gave off a sulfurous stink. It was, some said, as though hell were leaking out of the ground. By January, famine was striding nearer every day like a wolf in search of prey, as a poem in the Irish newspaper The Nation put it. Remnants of the previous year's crops remained at some homes, but they were diminishing. By March, farmers were raiding one another's fields, searching for missed roots or whatever else might be had. 
the scenes were post-apocalyptic. Men sucking the blood from the neck of a living cow, seaweed on the boil, grass-stained mouths and hands, women running an anxious hand over a sleeping child to see if she still breathed. Peasants who had never had much sold what was left, their clothes. It was not uncommon to see children and families nearly naked in the cool March air walking out to work what was left of their fields. By the spring of 1846, the nightmare seemed to be growing to a close, and most families thought they would soon have enough to eat. In June, the grains and vegetables were coming in strong, and the potatoes were in the ground. The blight of 1845, whatever its cause, had been an anomaly. The Irish farmers just had to make it until the final harvest in October, the harvest in which families would survive throughout the winter. Then, in July, a bad omen fell from the sky. The torrential rains that had been associated with the late blight the year before, here and there across Ireland, and then everywhere, were starting again. By the summer of 1846 in Ireland, apprehension had turned to horror. The rains continued, and as they did, the late blight spread to even more fields than it had the year before. The potato crop was lost. The already hungry began to starve. During the winter, fever became common. Typhus, relapsing fever, thousands began to die. In 1847, the story repeated itself again. The rains came. The crop disappeared. The hungry who managed to survive had been hungry three years in a row. When William Weil described absent-mindedly staring at the lovely fields around him in a valley one night, and two nights later, after two days of rain, looking out at a black and stinking horror, an entire valley dead. Nor was this landscape unique. In just a few days, most of the crop of Ireland was destroyed. Ireland stank. In 1845, it was just the odor of the dying potatoes. But by 1847, this odor was accompanied everywhere by that of human bodies, the naked and starving families alongside the road. Others lay half dead, half alive, prostrate in a, in a, prostrate in a state of mute yearning. Everywhere, human bodies gave off a sweet odor of living decay. Then there was the more overpowering smell of the dead. In fields, huddled together on beds in homes, piled in the mass graves where they were lowered, one after the other, day after day. New kinds of coffins were invented, those with drop-away bottoms that could be used again and again as bodies were dropped one on top of one another to save space and to avoid the need to build more coffins and dig more holes. By the August of 1847, those with guns had hunted out the last of the animal life that remained. By September, the guns and any remaining bullets were being used to hold up landowners and steal from them. By October, even the bullets were gone. By November, thousands had died. By December, tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands. The British government did not help, nor did the government administrators in Dublin. Most landowners, landowners did not help either, but they did pay taxes based on the number of people living on their land. It was these taxes, not the death and devastation consuming the country, that motivated the landowners to take real action. They began to tear down the houses of their tenants who could not pay rent in the hope that the hungry would just move away and release the, re reduce the tax burden on the land. When the tenants did not, many of the landowners coerced the poor into boarding ships for the Americas. Bodies, half alive, were stacked on top of each other in the holds of ships. It is an image that now evokes the ships of immigrants from Africa and Syria heading to Europe or Cubans on rafts floating toward Florida. More than a million Irish are estimated to have fled Ireland during or after the famine. Many of these people, men, women, and children, died en route or in the weeks or months after arrival. And still there was no solution. The blight, it seemed, could go on forever until nothing at all was left in Ireland. 
Perhaps the hardest thing to conceive of is that the demon that stalked the Irish fields could still afflict us today. Like that of the 19th century Irish, our diets have become ever simpler and more dependent on a small number of species. Today, just as in the 1800s in Ireland, this dependence results in part from our need and in part from our choices. We need ever more food from each acre and so are bound to those crops that produce the most. Just as it was for the Irish, each time a child is born, our reliance on our most productive crops increases. Corn in North America, wheat in Europe, cassava in, our, in Africa, rice in Asia. We are like the Irish in another way, too. The productivity of these fields came to depend on both irrigation and fertilizer, which they used to farm hills, to farm bogs, to farm everywhere. The Irish potato farmers were farming the first really modern crop. Our similarity to the Irish means that we must learn every lesson we can from their tragedy. We must learn especially from the way this tragedy came to an end. In 1847 in Ireland, even after half a million people died and another half a million fled, the task of dealing with the late blight remained. No solution had yet been implemented, nor had any other crop taken over in the absence of the potato. So long as the Irish and Europe in general blamed only the weather and fate alone, all there was to do was wait. The debate about the cause of the late blight had essentially stopped. The group who thought it was a fungus went quiet. As to those who felt more strongly, if they existed in those years at all, they were quiet, which is all the more horrific, because we now know that they were right. The late blight that struck Europe beginning in 1845 is an oomycete. Oomycetes at the time were still considered to be fungi. Their common name, water mold, reflects this history. But oomycetes are not fungi, nor are they, as they sometimes described, algae. They are an ancient life form you may never have heard of, yet we now know that a large number of oomycetes farm crops, and by virtue of our dependence on crops, humans, than do any other organisms. One species of oomycete causes sudden oak death, another causes the root rot disease of soybeans, then there are the pepper moraine and the downy mildew of grapevines. The oomycete that causes late blight is the same beast that Berkeley Morton and all those others called a, mi a minute fungus. Nearly everything they said about its biology was true. The spores of the organism travel through the air and land on plant leaves. Once there, they send snake-like tubes into the cells of the leaves. The oomycetes then feed on the insides of the leaves. The leaves begin to blacken and stink as the oomycetes turns them to goo. And in larger quantities, more oomycetes, which are visible as a white fringe on the blackening leaves. From inside the plant, the oomycetes send more spores out through the stomata or breathing holes of the potato plant. These spores colonize more plants, and the process continues anew as it did from plant to plant across continental Europe and from continental Europe to England and then on to Ireland. The spores spread better when it is windy, and the oomycete grows faster when it is wet. Both these things would have led the oomycete to do better in 1845, 1846, and 1847 than it did in other years. But the spread was almost certainly helped by something else, farmers dragging plants from place to place. All these details of the biology of the organism had been noted by 1846. They had been noted in great detail. They were just ignored. And it took a very long time for this hypothesis even to be accepted. It really wasn't. Um, I mean, they had problems with growing potatoes in Ireland for the next... 30, 50 years, really. And the big irony is that the copper sulfite solution that the Belgian scientist Charles Murren had suggested in 1845 would help contain the blight turned out to be true. Um, and he has uh, f 
from other sources. They, they figured that out later on, but it had already been, it was already in the literature as early as 1845 before the blight even hit Ireland. So, um, and now I'm going to read uh, a little bit about how how the potato even uh, ended up on on the menu in Europe. The perfect pathological storm. A perfect storm results when the confluence of several phenomena turns a bad situation, sometimes a literal storm, into something far worse. The potato famine resulted from a perfect storm of poor choices in addition to poor communication and major gaps in our scientific understanding of pathogens. Historians working with biologists finally have a sense of which phenomena made the late blight so awful during the potato famine. Few of us, however, have listened to the historians, and as a result, rather than grow our crops in ways that make disasters like the potato famine less likely, we have done everything necessary to make such a catastrophes more likely. A perfect pathological storm gathers steam just over the horizon, and rather than threatening only a few boats, it threatens whole countries. Many famines had occurred before the 1840s, but never one like the potato famine, never a famine of such great consequence tied directly to a single pathogen and a single crop. The human toll was so great in part because of the extreme dependence of the Irish on the potato. In this regard, many populations are as at risk today as the Irish were then. But why did the pathogen kill so many potatoes? Why were there none that seemed to survive? The answer is important because it bears on our modern agriculture. It speaks to the risk our crops, including our modern, our modern potato, face today, including a recurrence of late blight. In addition, the answer depends on decisions made long before the Irish ever started to grow potatoes, decisions made during the travels of the Spanish conquistadors and their aftermath. We left it to guys like Francisco Pizarro to choose the crops that we now farm. He and other conquistadors may seem both repugnant and far removed from your daily life, but nevertheless, they influence nearly every bite of food. And now there's a section about um, how how foods were brought back by guys like Pizarro um, back to Europe, because of course he didn't bring his main their main interest was uh, gold and silver, which of course they found in the Inca Empire after uh, a story this a story I'm sure you know you all know very well. Um, but then they, you know, they did bring, uh, plants back. The conquistadors chose from among the plenty, but without regard for the centuries to come. In an ideal world, conquistadors such as Pizarro would have brought back many varieties of each species of the new crops they were encountering. These would have included varieties that differed in taste, in the climates and soils in which they might grow, and as important as anything in their resistance to pathogens. Of course, what happened was the opposite. Consider, for example, the root crops of the Andes. At the time Pizarro revived in the Andes, the Inca farm no fewer than 10,000 varieties of a dozen species of root crops. Pizarro and his men would have eaten many of these, cooked for them by their Native American wives. Of these multitudes, a small subset was gathered by the Europeans. Perhaps one in 10,000 of these varieties made its way back to Europe. This raises two questions. First, why were so few varieties and crops brought back to Europe? And second, how were the varieties that made it back chosen? It's the answer to the latter question that was to shape the fate of the potato. As to why so few varieties were brought back to Europe, the first problem was the conquistadors themselves. The conquistadors were not for the most part farmers, nor were they skilled necessarily in learning from the locals. They were not even that good at distinguishing food from non-food, much less the subtle differences among the former. 
In addition, some species varieties they did not see. No record seems to exist, for example, of encounters between contisadors and the root crop oka. As a result, you might not have heard of oka. Other species they encountered but failed to note as food. Others still were recorded as food but viewed as inappetizing, like things like frogs and beetles. Um, ecologists talk about ecological filters, those features of habitats or of particular moments in evolutionary history that allow some species to move and thrive and prohibit others from doing so. The first crop filters all related to choices made by the contestadors. That the conquistadors' preferences had a lasting impact. If a food from the Americas was not tasty to the conquistadors, you are very unlikely to have ever seen it in a major store. And this is another long section. Um, of course, obviously, ecological filter number two is um, the seed or the plant has to be able to survive the trip from one place to another. In this case, it had to make it in the hold of a ship. Uh, from going back from uh, South America to Europe, a trip that took about two years. And most of what they brought did not survive, and unsurprisingly. And once on the ship, they have to be able to be grown somewhere. And um, historically, a lot of plants move from one place to the other. Um, after a stop in the Canary Islands, and this is true for the things that were brought from South America, um, because Canary Islands were just because of the location were sort of a a way station between Europe and uh, ships making voyages between uh, Europe and Africa, between Europe and the Americas, even Europe and Asia. And if you were moving plants from one place to another, it was uh, a place where you could sort of plant them and establish them and figure out if they were going to be able to replant them. It's uh, It has a wide variety. It's a volcanic islands. They have a, a wide variety of um, climates there for a, a bunch of reasons. It's just it's an interesting place. And uh, things like bananas and sugarcane, which are originally from Asia, were first replanted in the Canary Islands, and that's actually how they were later brought to the Americas, because once they were, uh, it was established that they could be grown in the Canaries, it was felt that you could probably bring them somewhere else. And this is true for all the things from South America, and especially the potato. Um, of the 25 root and tuber crops grown in South America, just the potato made it to the Canary Islands. Of the thousands, variety, thousands of varieties of Andean potatoes from nine separate subspecies, just a few dozen arrived in the Canary Islands, all of which appear to have been of the same subspecies, Solanum tuberosum. Of the few dozen varieties of potatoes that made it to the Canary Islands, just a handful made it to continental Europe. And of that handful, just the lumper and a few others grows well in Ireland, where growing seasons are short and days during those seasons are long. Of the particular lumper lineages that were present in Ireland, those that were favored were either resistant to stress associated with transit, fecund, or able to grow where the season was short and the days long. The result was a crop that was fecund and yet homogenous, a crop that grew well but only in the absence of pests and pathogens. And there was something else, too. The potato plants in Europe came, came ashore naked, that is, without any of the traditional knowledge that farmers in the Andes would have acquired regarding planting, growing, storing, and preparing them over the course of centuries. The complexity of Andean cropping systems had no precedent in Europe, says James Lang, author of Notes of a Potato Watcher. It was, quote, geared to every nuance of altitude and rainfall, unquote. In other words, the conquistadors had a lot of catching up to do. They could have learned a great deal that they could have passed on to people farming potatoes in the Canary Islands who could, in turn, have passed the knowledge on to those who began to farm potatoes in Europe. But this did not happen. As a result, by the time the late blight was moving across continental Europe and then to England and Ireland, nearly all of the potatoes were of a single highly productive variety, the lumper, 
and they were being farmed in new ways, recently invented by Europeans, invented without the biology of the potato or its pathogens very much in mind. Everything the British government and agricultural scientists urged Irish potato farmers to do, and nearly all the choices the farmers themselves made, sped up the spread of the late blight. And I'll break you into to say to summarize here. Um, yes, and agricultural scientists, not just in England but in France, the, one of the the big places where they were doing uh, research on potatoes and trying to urge the uh, use of the potato was was France, especially in the immediate. Uh, Period after the after the French Revolution, there were a number of different scientists working on uh, the on the potato, and um, while you could get yields out of it, all as he says, all the 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 techniques were, in the long run, not not the best for getting rid of the blight. For one thing, plowing the fields rather than using in uh, traditional raised fields, which would have changed the temperature, would have made it. Um, Plowing the fields made it more easy, made it easier for the blight to spread, as it turned out. And also, they tended not to replant from actual seeds, although, of course, obviously, potatoes have flowers and seeds. Um, it is, you get more consistent result by using, by just planting hunks of the potato, you know, that have already uh, sprouted and using, using and replanting from that. In fact, probably a lot of you have done it for you know as a school project, if nothing else, that you just take a hunk of potato with an eye in it and put it in a glass of water, and there you've got a potato. And but that's really how potatoes were grown. In fact, it's how the Indians did it as well, but they didn't depend on that because they weren't just growing one kind of potato. And while they did, um, you know, use and these hunks of potato are called seed potatoes, which is kind of confusing, but. Um, that's how the Andes also replanted it for the same reason that anybody might, because you you want consistent results. If you like this one potato, if you do that by you know cut it up in little pieces, you'll get a lot more where that came from. But you don't want to depend on that. You want to also plant other varieties, and you also want to work, want to work from seeds so that you always have a, a number of uh, things to fall back on. But the modern scientific uh, thought at that time period, the mainstream thought was was otherwise. So. This is how the potato crop failed in in Europe, and you know, as, he, as he said, in, in Belgium, in France, in Holland, and eventually, and most disastrously, in uh, in Ireland. And to close off this part of the story, um, scientists have started to examine whether any of the Andean potato varieties are resistant to late blight. This is something you might imagine would have happened in the late 1800s, but it didn't. It's just happening now, and it's only possible because of an amazing amount of foresight almost half a century earlier, an act of foresight, luck, and to some extent, a reliable truck. In 1971, the Peruvian government created the International Potato Center. The goal of the center was and is to study and conserve the traditional varieties of the potato and other crops of Peru for the people of Peru and for the world. It was to be and is one of 11 such centers, each of which is dedicated to a different sort of crop in a different region. The centers are lo loosely coordinated by... CGIAR, the Consultative Group for International Agriculture Research. By 1982, the center's collection was large and included thousands of varieties of potatoes, not to mention other crops. It was successful. It was also in jeopardy. In 1982, the country is in the midst of a guerrilla-led civil war in which the Marxist guerrillas, the Sendero Luminoso, made daily life both difficult and terrifying for many Peruvians. For example, the Sendero Luminoso arrived at one of the main agricultural stations where native Andean crops, including potatoes, were being 
farmed and conserved in Ayacucho. They surrounded the station bearing lit torches and prepared to burn it down. The scientists feared for their lives and ran. But a campesino, a poor farmer, stepped forward. He begged the Sendero Luminoso to leave the collection be, not because the scientists needed the seeds and potatoes, but because the farmers, the people, needed them. It worked, or at least it bought the scientists' time. According to James Lang and Knights of a Potato Watcher, Carlos Arbizu, an agronomist employed at the time by the National University of Anacucho, decided that he must move the collection. At the urging of the head of the station, he packed as much of it as he could into his truck and drove off. The next night, the Sendero Luminoso destroyed the building in which the seeds, tubers, and roots had been stored. Arbizo was still driving when it happened. In Lang's telling, Arbizo asked people in any village in the high Andes in which he could safely stop to plant and care for some of the tubers and seeds. Later, later Arbizo went back to the villages to collect some of the samples for the station. The farmers had kept farming many of the varieties that they liked, and in doing so, had helped to save them. So, the moral of that story being that uh, while what the scientists were doing was important, most of them were not very brave. <laughs> and uh, the revolutionaries who thought they knew better than everybody else, I should say the Leninist revolutionaries who always think they can, you know, they know better than everybody else what's how the revolution should be made, uh, valued the uh, heritage plants of the country much less than did the regular folks who were, in fact, of course, the descendants of the folks who had originally de- developed these heritage plants. And the center, and, and so as a result, that has a, a happy ending. Um, there were hundreds of potatoes being studied there. And um, yes, as it turns out, some of them actually are resistant to, to late blight, which could have been known earlier if more people had paid attention, but they weren't, but happily now they are. And since that's sort of a, a happy, a, the happy, happy-ish ending, and what is still an alarming story, I'm going to end there for tonight. And the book I've been reading from, which I will return to later, I might even do it next week, because it's my favorite story about the cacao plants I didn't even get to tonight because I was so eager to talk about potatoes. And this book is never out of season. Why, how having the food we want when we want it threatens our food supply and our future by the professor of ecology, Rob Dunn, um, published by Little Brown, and it is in print, and you can buy it in the store if you wish to. And my name is Anne-Marie Henderson. The show is a mansion for the rat on WBAI-FM, 99.5 in New York City, part of the Pacifica Network. I'll be back next week. And you should stay tuned to listen to the Haitian All-Stars following almost immediately after this show and listen to some great music. Why don't you? Good night. <laughs>